ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Naz Campanella is the ABC's disability affairs reporter. You might have seen Naz reporting on the Royal Commission into violence, abuse, neglect and exploitation of people with disability. And in a previous life, you might have heard her reading the news on Triple J or indeed on ABC Radio Bega. Naz is blind and she fell in love with radio and audiobooks as a kid. And she always wanted to be a journalist. Now, there are resources to help blind people towards a career in media, but many of them rely on Braille. And this was the thing for Naz. It was only through a series of horrible misunderstandings that it was discovered that Braille would never work for her. Nonetheless, Naz became a supremely capable newsreader and a reporter for the greater glory of the ABC and the nation as a whole. Hi, Naz. Hello. Now, you've gone from radio to TV. How could you leave the beautiful world of radio behind for those flashy people in TV? I started in TV (laughs) and went to radio. So glad I made the transition too. I love the intimacy and speed of radio. How are you finding the transition, Naz? Look, I'm still lucky that I get to work in radio alongside TV, so I'm doing both. I don't think I could ever leave radio. Uh, I'll say that now. It's just the most beautiful medium, what you can do with sound, and it's obviously a natural thing for me because I can't see. But TV is fun. TV is a challenge. It's a, a big puzzle where for me the pieces don't always fit and I need a bit of external support outside that puzzle to put it all together. But I'm loving the challenge and I'm loving that I have a visible presence on a screen where people told me I never would. You need to be very terse in TV. You really need to write very, very carefully what it is you're going to say because you really don't have that much time and it's got to fit in and around the pictures. Do you like that or not like that? I do like that. And sometimes I find myself saying to my producers, I think we need an extra line that describes X, Y, Z. And they will say to me, no, we don't. The pictures say it for us. And so I have to often pinch myself and remind myself that that pictures do the talking in TV. But it's it's been fun to learn that and to think differently. And it's made me a better writer. So it's a, it's a good thing. Whenever I'm on TV, I always feel terribly self-conscious and sometimes I'll need to even leave the room. I'm that sort of (laughs) awkward about it. I'm sure other people feel the same way when they see me on the telly as well. What about you? Are you freed from that self-consciousness, I wonder? In a sense, I am because I can't look at myself and I've never been able to. Uh, I don't know what I look like, but I know how I feel. And so if something doesn't feel right in terms of clothing or, you know, I've also come to learn where the microphone needs to sit on my jacket, where the cords need to be so they're not visible, what direction I need to be looking in. I, I get a lot of feedback from my producers, the, the, the newsreaders that I'm going into the studio to talk to. And I think over time you pick up different skills that that you're supposed to learn. And also it is a trust game. I have to trust not only that the producers are letting me walk into the studio with, you know, without lipstick on my teeth and with my jacket nicely, you know, firm down. And I need to trust them as well that my stories look the way they perceive I want them to look. Um, The way people with disability are portrayed and seen on television is, is a big goal for me in this round and I wanted to make sure that people were were seen in a way that they hadn't been seen before and that is empowered, strong, like themselves, you know, and so I talk a lot to the talent about how they want to be portrayed and then I have to relay that to the producers and hope that they 
are, are bringing about to life what I'm envisaging in my mind. So it's a very big game of trust. Now, as I said, you discovered that Braille wouldn't be available to you. So when you became a newsreader at Triple J, reading national news bulletins, how did you make technology work for you? So I had been using uh, screen reading software called JAWS since uh, I was about 10 or 11. Once it was discovered I couldn't read Braille, we had to find other means. And so my support teacher at the school introduced me to the use of this technology. And basically the technology scans everything on the screen and it reads it out aloud. And so that's how I learned at school. It's how I went through university. And essentially that came to the workplace here at the ABC with me. And so I would be able to type up the stories because it would read everything out to me. And then in the studio, I would listen to those stories through headphones and I would repeat what I was hearing. Live to wear? Live to wear, live to wear. So you've got headphones on and you're hearing uh, a voice in your ear reading your words to you and you're just repeating them as you hear it? Exactly. And it's not in my voice. It's in a little robotic sort of uh, voice that's coming into my ear. So, you know, it pronounced things often not correctly and it had fun with, with foreign names and places and things. So I had to then remember how to say those things. So I was also doing a lot of mental exercises in my mind from listening, figuring out what I needed to say, and then actually saying it. And it had to happen simultaneously. But Richard, it wasn't the only thing that I was hearing during a bulletin. Apart from listening to the screen reading software read me those scripts, all those stories in my ear, I was also listening to myself coming through the microphone I could hear the little audio snippets that you play during a bulletin. And I also heard a clock telling me when to start and finish that bulletin. And on top of all of that, I had to monitor the desk. I was pressing all the buttons on the desk. And so there was a lot going on (laughs) at that time. I don't know how you did that. That's hard. But you, of course, can't sound like you're having a hard time. You have to sound like you're completely on top of it. And you're able to do that. For the most part, yes. Look, I will admit it was not a perfect system when we started and the only reason it was possible was because I had fabulous supportive team around me. I had some tech operators, IT experts. I had people from the vision-impaired community who hadn't done the same thing because, as far as we know, I am the only blind newsreader in the world to be able to do that. And I've been claiming that for almost 10 years now. So if someone was, they would have knocked me off my perch by now. But it was because of this fabulous supportive team that was open-minded to letting me have this opportunity and to conquer this, that it worked. But yes, it didn't always go according to plan. There were times during a bulletin where for some reason the desk would just die on me or the computer would just (laughs) run flat. And there were times where I had 30 seconds to go in a bulletin and I had nothing in front of me. So I just started singing to the audience. (laughs) <laughs> and another time where... Sorry, you sang to the audience. I just sang and I don't even... I, there were no lyrics. It was just da-da-da-da-da. And another time I actually <laughs> just was honest with the audience and I just said, the computer has died. I don't know what's happened. I've got a backup computer, but that's also died. And I'm just going to talk to you. And I think that's one thing that kind of set me apart from everyone else. I didn't have the liberty of lying to the audience. I needed to be honest with them. And I think 
in a big way, it's how the audience connected with me, not only because I was their newsreader, but because I was real. And when things went wrong, I let them know. I brought them inside that studio with me. What was the real pleasure for you, in your mind, in reading the news to young Australians on Triple J? I had always wanted to be a newsreader. And I'd had lots of people tell me that I couldn't be a journalist, that, you know, media was going to be too hard. It was all very visual and not to bother and all those sorts of things. And even as a young child, I would sit there with a double cassette player and I would be listening to music, recording the songs and then recording my voice in between them. And then as I got older, I'd walk around the house listening to people read the news and copying them at the same time. So in a sense, I was doing that style of news reading for a very long time, just in a much less sophisticated way in my own bedroom. So when I did get to become a newsreader for Australia's biggest youth network and read to something like two million people every day, I felt an incredible sense of achievement that I had proved those people wrong, but also that I was doing what I always wanted to do. And thirdly, that the minute I started reading the news on Triple J and people found out that I was doing it in a bit of a different way to other newsreaders, I had so many people contact me across Australia and abroad that had always wanted to get into journalism or were thinking of studying journalism, but they had a disability. And they finally found someone that they could see and hear themselves in. And it gave them great hope. And that gave me a great sense of pride. You grew up in Western Sydney in a large Italian family. Now, the cliche of that is big family all sitting around a table eating fantastic food, drinking wine, talking, arguing. But is the cliche true in this case for your family? The cliche is absolutely true. (laughs) So, uh, yes, very big Italian family. I mean, as it currently stands, my mum's side, my immediate family is 50 people and uh, other side, a lot smaller. But mum's side, you know, grandparents... Uh, and first three children born overseas. And my grandfather migrated in 1956 and my grandmother followed two years later with her three children and she had my mum, child number four, when, when they were reunited in Australia. I'm incredibly, was incredibly close to my grandparents, particularly my grandmother. She, she really was like my, my second mum and she was the closest thing in my life until I had till I found a partner and had a baby of my own. Did your family make their own food? We did. So I grew up on homemade pasta, bread, wine, tomato sauce. If anyone has uh, seen or, or heard that movie, Looking for Alibrandi, that some of those things are so true. Um, nothing is ever a secret. Everyone in the family knows everything <laughs> about everyone. Um, we do tomato sauce day. What where, happens on tomato sauce day? Well, it's where everyone gathers and you do the squashing of the tomatoes. Everyone's got their particular job. It's like a big assembly line. And you make posada, which is, you know, thick sugo type sauce, which you then add to, you know, tomato pieces and things. And that is what makes the base of the most rich, thick, beautiful, sweet pasta sauce. You know, my afternoon tea when my grandparents picked me up from school was homemade pizza, homemade sandwiches with cured meats and and cheese. I was very lucky. And my dad's side, a lot smaller, they were tomato farmers. And my grandfather had the very typical story of working in North Queensland on sugarcane farms and then moved to Western Sydney and he and my grandmother worked incredibly hard on a tomato farm. 
And um, my other grandparents, my mum's side, grandfather worked at Warragamba Dam and grandmother was a seamstress and worked in a sunglass factory. And my grandparents, my mum's parents were incredibly strict, particularly because she was a little bit of a rebel, particularly because she was the youngest. Uh, I remember mum telling me that she used to get dropped off at like a local Italian dance um, where she was supposed to be. And then she and her friends would split the fare of a taxi and head into the city and it would all be done in secret. And that's where she met my dad in the city one night. You mentioned your maternal grandmother. What kind of things was she able to teach you as a little kid? She was able to teach me about the way that you want to be treated in life is the way you should treat others. And I think that's one of the greatest lessons I've taken with me always. Uh, Never to be wasteful. That was something that she was very, very conscious of. I mean, we would throw clothes out and she would get them out of the bin, wash them, repurpose them, and next week you'd go over there and you'd see someone else, another cousin, (laughs) wearing a dress made out of your old school uniform or whatever it would be. And she taught me about a love of food and how precious food is not only for nourishment, for bringing people together and how important it is to to share a meal and how togetherness is brought about, not just by physically being together, but by having conversations, by sharing stories, by sharing wisdom and lessons. And I think one of the greatest memories I have is quite a simple one, just sitting in her living room, the fire going and her knitting and just listening to my silly stories. She also introduced you to high culture. She (laughs) gave you a love of the bold and the beautiful on TV. She certainly did. Do you still have that love of the bold and the beautiful to this day? I adore the bold and the beautiful. (laughs) My greatest thing, apart from spending a whole year off on maternity leave with my beautiful son, was every afternoon at 4.30, we would sit and we would watch the bold and the beautiful. And I wouldn't let him watch any other TV except for that half an hour. And um, it is still very special. Obviously, you don't remember you becoming a blind person. What were you told about how that happened, Naz? I'm told that it was very quick and that it seemed very painful. It was very unexpected. It was just one morning when my mum noticed that my eyes were very big and hard and sore and that I was in a lot of pain. How old were you? I was about six months old. So you really don't remember anything before that, do you? Uh, as a child. And I spent the better part of those first two years really in and out of hospital. My my mum recalls spending Easter's there, Christmases, um, just being tied to hospital chair. At first she was told that it would be, it would remain stable. At first it was a, a small amount of vision that I'd lost, but it all went eventually. And she really, I guess, had hope that it would remain as low vision or um, that it would potentially get better, but it wasn't to be. What happened to your eyes? Medically, it's it's a rare retinal abnormality. There is no real medical term. What had happened was that it was blood vessels that had suddenly burst in the back of my eyes and they ended up detaching my retinas. And so all I can see now really is the tiniest bit of light perception and shadows. On the periphery or in the centre? In the centre. So if I put my hand up in front of my face, I can see that there is something there, but unless I reach out and touch it, I don't know what it is. How did your parents deal with the news? Did they have any familiarity with dealing with anything like this at all? No, they didn't. They had never really met anybody with a disability before. And I think at first they were quite 
they went through all those different stages, I guess, you know, feeling anxious, scared. This life was unknown to them and there were lots of questions, but I guess they didn't even have the words or the language to ask those questions. And they believed in everything they were being told by the doctors and, and therapists and all they wanted from the very beginning once they in a sense, had a, a diagnosis and, and knew that things weren't necessarily going to get better, was they wanted me to live an independent life. So they were very, very pragmatic about things, getting involved in firstly counselling for for them to make sure that they were okay. But then it was all about making sure we engaged the right services for me. So I had the support and everything I needed to grow and develop and learn how to do everything that my my brother and my cousins would do in life. You were born in the mid-80s. I wonder how different things would have been for you had you been born in the mid-50s, for example. Very different. Technology has enabled me to do everything in life and I would be nowhere without it. And the tech that kids have access to now is just phenomenal. And if I had been born in a different time, I'm almost lucky that I was born in the time I was because I'm grateful to, I guess, the fact that attitudes were starting to change. They weren't great around disability. There was still an incredible amount of stigma and still is, but back, you know, even in the 80s, there definitely was. But the technology is the biggest difference for me. So what school did you start at? I went to a school for kids with special needs and it wasn't just blindness. It was various things, intellectual disability or or deaf or hard of hearing. I was enjoying myself. I didn't really know, you know, what are you interested in as a as a tiny kid at first? You're interested in socialising and, and that was me. I was a social butterfly. I was just loving the fact that I was there to make new friends and I was learning Braille but really in a sense there wasn't, you know, access to a concrete sort of curriculum like there would have been for other children in primary school. So how quickly did you make the transition then to a mainstream school? So It was very clear to the teachers at this school that I should be transferred into mainstream education quite quickly. And I know that they voiced that to my parents very early on. But to my parents' credit, I think when you've never met someone with disability and you don't know many other families and and your experience is very foreign around this space, um, you don't know what to do and you're scared. I know my mum particularly was scared about me not getting access to everything I needed in a mainstream school, getting lost, um, you know, physically getting lost on the playground, but also physically just getting lost in the system. And I think she worried that I wouldn't grow to be the independent person that she wanted me to be. And I think she was worried that because stigma was so bad, even then, that that there would be bullying, there would be name calling, there would be all of that, that kind of thing. So it was a couple of years between trying different schools and, you know, first day it was a very gradual thing of being one day a week and then gradually we found the right school and I ended up going five days a week and it was absolutely, on all accounts, the the best decision. You mentioned Braille was difficult for you. I think we imagine that if someone's blind they're going to be super clever at Braille. Was that the expectation for you that you'd just pick it up because you're a bright kid and you just pick it up as, as a snap anyway? And, and what was it like when you weren't able to pick it up so quickly? I think the expectation was very much that blind people weren't one way and that was through Braille. And I had a support teacher at the time who, when I went into the mainstream education system, was very much had only taught children who were vision impaired through Braille and Braille was it. That was the hard and fast. And so when I was struggling, she would say things to my parents that I was lazy, that I wasn't trying hard enough and that we needed to work at it. 
And so I'd go home with a Braille book in front of me at the dining room table every night and my parents would sit there with a printed version of that book in front of them and I would struggle and I would end up in tears. I would be anxious. I would be stressed. And to be honest, my parents would end up arguing because my dad kept saying, this just isn't right. We're forcing her to do something that may not be quite right. And my mum, to her credit, saying, we just need to keep working at it. You you can't just give up. And trusting that this teacher knew what she was saying. And it wasn't until I was 10, so a couple of years down the track, where I was really falling behind at school and not enjoying school, where my mum decided that, no, we had to go and see a neurologist and see what was going on. And that's when I was diagnosed with Charcot-Marie-Tooth neuropathy, which does affect your balance, your muscle tone and your sensitivity in your hands, arms, legs and feet. Charcot-Marie-Tooth neuropathy, I think you called it. Yeah, neuropathy. What does that do to your sense of touch? Does it make it hard to read signals or you just don't feel, you have much feeling in your fingertips? To put it it? simply, so I can feel that, that there's dots on a page, but I can't make them out. I can't make out what they say. They are so small. And for example, if you and I touched a kettle that had just finished boiling, you would know instantly that that is hot and you need to pull your hand away, it takes my skin a little longer to register. So I have to be quite careful of burning myself, particularly in wintertime when I've got cold feet and say I go to jump into a hot shower, I often feel uh, my feet sort of have a burning sensation because I've realised that the hot water's been on the floor and it's been a bit hot and it takes my feet a little while to register. And so the messages just aren't sent as quickly as they are for, for other people there is a, a, a distortion between what my fingers can can feel and what they're supposed to feel. So what was your workaround for this condition, given that you were blind and were unable to absorb Braille from the page? So very early on, we decided to change support teachers and have someone and you know who we, we could start fresh with, someone with a, a different perspective and open mind, who had worked with various people with different disabilities. And she was the one that introduced me to screen reading software, which I've talked about. That changed everything. That introduced me to a love of reading because I could finally access Word documents on a computer and I would listen to them. She introduced me to audiobooks and finally the person who was struggling and crying about reading I mean, my parents had to come in at, you know, two or three o'clock in the morning and tell me to turn my audiobooks off because I, I had missed out so much really? that all I wanted to right. do was read. You're hoovering all this stuff up so Yeah, you? Right. it was like I'd mm. missed out on the majority of primary school worth of books and here I was catching up on, on everything. And that's really where I decided that I loved school and that I wanted to learn and that that I could go from, from being, you know, at the bottom of the class to, to someone who ended up finishing at the top of my grade in Year 12 because of that technology and because of the teacher who, who encouraged me with different ideas to learn. Is rote memory learning a thing for you? It, it definitely is. It has become one of the strategies for me to learn everything from, from school to university right through to, to the workplace now. So I would, for example, write an essay and say in Year 12, I use that same essay for all of my exams, but I just changed the top bit according to <laughs> according to the question because it's how I learned. I didn't have the luxury of flipping back through textbook after textbook and and having post-it notes on pages to, to, to jog my memory. I had to remember 
things word for word on a page. And and now even at work when I go to do a, a live cross on television, I don't have the luxury of looking up at audio auto cue or having palm cards in front of me. I keep it very simple and I say to the say I've got two questions. I'll have three main points for the first answer and three main for the second. And I will as I'm as I'm doing my live cross, I will use my fingers to count the points under the desk so no one sees my strategy, but they all know about it now. Uh, uh, but but for me, it's a little mental check in my mind because my memory has just become such an invaluable tool. So do you have an actor's mind? Are you able to memorise like long bits of script or is there some other uh, mental strategy you use? Like people who are capable of memorising long bits of all, all sorts of things often have a memory palace system mm, in their heads mm. where you go into a different room and open a drawer and there's all the... States of the United States in one drawer and over there is every member of the Justice League of America or something like that. Yeah. Uh, what about you? Look, it's it's not quite as, as good as I guess people would imagine. It's it's out of necessity more than, you know, I read a novel and I can remember from start to finish word for word. And, and even when I say go and do a piece to camera, which is, you know, filming, you know, several lines of, of, of text that you've written, some of the words may be different that that come out when I go and record that to camera, but the gist of, you know, the ideas, the thought pattern is is essentially the same. Are you a singer? Because you mentioned singing and do you memorise things the same way singers memorise songs? It's much easier to remember and memorise a song than it is a long speech, for example. I, I Yes, I was in a choir and I love singing. And yes, I guess it is. You, you remember by, I guess, a, a, you know, the, the sound of a tune or a hum, the words that go with that. And I guess I've never thought of it, but I do view scripts for a story in the same way because you sort of da-da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da. Like you, you, you kind of, each line is, is I guess, a, a tune with, has a with lyrics. It yeah, has a and, and it has shape to it. And you it. want to make sure that you start off in a certain way, that you end in it in the right inflection and all those sorts of things. I've never thought of it, but I actually do. Yeah, you're right. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So what pointed you towards going into journalism in the first place after shooting up, as you say, from somewhere near the bottom of the class once you had audiobooks and this new JAWS technology available to you, shooting right up to the top of your class, Naz? Oh, look, I'd always listened to radio, I think because when you have no vision, TV is not the most natural thing that you gravitate towards for entertainment. And I used to fall asleep to the sound of the radio and I used to wake up to it. And I loved how people sounded. I, it's how I learnt about the world around me. And I just knew from very early on that that's something that I was interested in. And then when I tried community radio in mid-high school, I realised how much I loved being behind the microphone and talking to people. And the power you can have in telling people about what's going on in their community. And so I, I always knew I wanted to do that. And so when I got into the University of Technology, Sydney, to do my journalism degree, 
and I started there and, and I was doing internships at the same time at all kinds of organisations, TV, radio, women's magazines, magazines, and, you know, newspapers and all kinds of things. I just, I loved writing. I loved talking to different people. I loved that no day was ever the same. And I knew that that would be the ultimate career. How did your mum feel about you going to uni? Look, I think she was incredibly proud. And I I know she was, uh, particularly because she got into university many years ago, but then took a gap year and never went back. And so from her perspective, I I wanted to take a gap year, but I, I, she encouraged me not to. She wanted me to go to university. And for my dad, he had never had the privilege of being able to finish high school. He was forced to work on the family farm. And so for him, because I got into university, he absolutely wanted me to go to uni. It was very important to him. But I think both of them, you know, they were incredibly proud that also I was going and doing things that that I guess they felt at the time they weren't gutsy enough to do many years ago. You know, travelling, moving out, going to university, doing all these different things that I guess in a sense they'd wish they had the opportunity to do. So they were incredibly proud. There's a line in the TV series The Wire where one of the lead actors who's a journalist on the Baltimore Sun says, all I ever wanted to do was find out something new every day and write a story about it or tell people about it. Is that the pleasure of journalism for you? It is, yeah. I love that no day is ever the same. I get to do different stories every day, find out about different issues and meet different people. And I get to find out about their most personal things and also the things that scare them, that excite them, that they're worried about. And I get to help them articulate those things so that they can raise awareness and they can have their voice heard in the community. And that feels really special and a a huge privilege. I used to catch public transport, and I still do, to the ABC. I sometimes would see blind people get on the bus and you can almost feel the anxious energy projected onto that person who is Mm. blind, who's fine, actually, getting on, on the bus. Are people weird with you when you get on public transport? I have had the most strange encounters with people on public transport that I have never met. I have been handed reams of paper from someone who tells me they've seen me on the train every day for the last month and they'd been doing research about how to cure my blindness and here was the reams of research they'd found. They're handing you reams of printed research. Mm, Interesting. But yes, they did. Is that funny or not? It sounds it, funny it is, to me. It is, but, yeah. but this happens all the time. So for me, it's it's normal. <laughs> I've had people hand me money. I'm not quite sure why, but, you know, I, I just politely give it back. And then I've also had, I guess, really, really disappointing and really heartbreaking things said to me, like, if I was you, I'd kill myself. Oh, what? Um, just people say that out of the blue to you? It's it? only happened once, but it took me by complete and utter surprise and I didn't know how to react. What a thing to say. What was wrong with that person? Do you think it's mental illness or, I, I or, think, or not? Or? I think that was the first thing I thought. Uh, apart from feeling really terrible and getting off the train and bursting into tears and I remember it was my auntie who was picking me up and I was quite shocked and I told her and we both just couldn't believe that that person had said something. But then the, the other thing I thought was I think that person has other things going on and and it's not the right thing to say and I wish they hadn't but also I think that person obviously has things that they need to work through and it was more about them than anything to do with me. And at the time all I could think of was I don't understand why. I've got a beautiful life. I've got a loving family, a brilliant partner. I travel, I work, I 
live in a, a place that I love. I feel safe. I don't know why you wouldn't want my life. And I think the other thing I'd say about public transport is I do find that people, when I get on, they do project, I, I suppose, their uneasy energy on to me. They want to pick up my cane off the floor because they worry that I'm going to somehow drop it between the train and the platform because I couldn't possibly know how to manoeuvre it onto the, the platform. And they they want to find me a seat or they just grab my arm and pull me in a certain direction. And all of that is lovely because they're trying to help. But I think what people don't know is that people who are blind are often given lots of training, whether they have a guide dog or a cane, to learn how to navigate the world using their particular mobility aids. And so we feel very confident. And if we don't, we generally ask for help. Have you ever considered acting like a school teacher with your cane, whacking them on the ass, telling them to get off the train and stand in the corner and think hard about themselves and their lives? I will admit that parked cars are a favourite of mine. If there is a car that is in a spot that is not supposed to be there, I don't take kindly and the cane does <laughs> somehow, I'm not sure how, end up just tapping the bonnets and the backs of people's cars. How about the cane? Did you want to use a cane or not want to use a cane for a while? How do you, I, know, I know this is a kind of a, I don't know, it's not controversial, but it's a subject for discussion, isn't it? It is, yeah. Look, there are so many different ways that blind or people with low vision navigate. And growing up, and I think a lot of people with disability feel this, I didn't want to be seen as different. I didn't want to be seen as disabled. It's taken me a long time to kind of find my spot of pride with where I sit with my disabilities. And the cane for me growing up was a sign that I was more different than my peers and my my family. And so, no, I didn't. I, I, I didn't use my cane very often. And also because my parents dropped me at school, my grandparents picked me up. I always had beautiful friends or family that were with me wherever I went. It wasn't until I got into university and started doing internships and wanting to travel into the city. I lived in Western Sydney, so getting on the train for an hour each way. It wasn't till then where I could see, hang on a sec, you don't need people around you all the time and you don't need to be dependent. You can do all the same things but you can do it on your own. And it's then when I noticed that people viewed me differently as well. They saw me as a strong, independent woman who had career aspirations and life aspirations. And that was something that I loved. So became then sort of became my best friend. You sound like quite a driven student, as you were back in the day. Did you do that other student thing, though? You know, drinking lots of Bundy and Cokes, <laughs> listening to tech, techno, going to gigs, that kind of thing, hanging out, slacking off? I did have a really, really thriving social life. I mean, at school, I, I didn't. I sort of retreated in year 11 and 12 because I had this really firm goal of getting into the university course of my choice. And the marks were extremely high to get into the journalism course at UTS at the time. And I'll admit I was not a naturally gifted child. I really had to work hard at the academic side of school. And it was all that rote learning and, and writing and writing and rewriting after getting feedback from teachers and things. I mean, though, the slacking off, though. Well, the, I'm, the, I'm getting that. to that. Hang on. So so I, I re retreated a, a little bit and just really worked hard in year 11, 12. But then after, I guess I did kind of let my hair down in first kind of couple of years of uni. But more or less, Richard, I've always been a person who has certain goals in life and who's always worked very hard to achieve them. And there's obviously social life on the side of that. I've always had the most 
big and beautiful group of friends. And of course we let our hair down, but you know, I was never a, a huge party animal. So out of uni, you joined ABC Radio in Bega in the south coast of New South Wales. I uh, There's a view of a lot of people on this program, which is that starting in regional local radio is one of the best media apprenticeships you can ever have. And maybe even an ongoing career, even though you're starved of resources quite often in those places. How do you feel about that, what you can learn in a regional ABC station in Australia? So I started out in the Sydney newsroom as my first year out of university, and it was a wonderful training ground. But I really didn't learn everything I needed to know until I went to the regions. And that was for a couple of reasons. Number one, there was no news agenda set to you. There was no press releases. You had to make the news. You had to go out and you had to talk to people you didn't know. And you and, had to and come you, up with people will tell you, though. You got to do, all you've got to do is walk down the main drag and they'll know you from the ABC and they'll go, oh, you should be talking about this. This stuff's exactly. going on right now. And that's exactly what happened. And it forced me out of, I mean, I was already very much an outgoing, out of my shell type of person, but it even it happened even more so there. And, and it was the first time I was living by myself completely independently. You know, the, the nearest family and friends were six hours drive away. The public transport wasn't ideal. So, you know, I had to walk everywhere, make friends, get lifts with with friends once I made them and talk to people. And that's how I came up with news bulletins and, and stories each and every day. And it was where I got to test drive, I, I guess, news reading and try all these different things that I thought I'd like to do in the future. I was able to do them being in a regional posting because it's all hands on deck and and you do get to try different things. Tell me how you met your lovely husband, Thomas. So Thomas was the journalist in Bega and I was actually going down to Bega to replace him. But I was with my parents and we had gone down to Bega to find me a place to live and I thought, let's go and drop into the ABC. Meet the colleagues. And meet the colleagues. And in we walk and Thomas was there walking around with no shoes on. He was in his socks and, you know, a button-up shirt and and he was just lovely. We all went out to lunch, all the colleagues, my parents and I. So he got the easy way out and not only did he meet me, but he met my parents as well. So he sort of ticked all of those boxes. But it wasn't until I moved down there and he was, we are obviously spending a lot of time together because he had to kind of show me the ropes in the office where, you know, we'd go out for dinner and he'd drive me around the South Coast and introduce me to all the people I needed to know, take me to the farmer's markets and all those kinds of things. And we were instant best friends. We had an instant connection. We loved the same things. We could talk for hours and forget the time. And he is incredibly intelligent, the most intelligent person I have ever met. And I think that's the thing I instantly fell in love with. It didn't matter what I asked him or what I talked to him about. He knew something about everything. And he was genuinely interested in everything that I had to say. And I think that's rare to find in a person that whether you're talking about animals, music, movies, food, fashion, he is just keenly interested in knowing everything that I want to talk about. So like I said, you read news on Triple J for a while. Uh, Then 2019, fast-forwarding a bit here, there was a new role for you as the ABC's National Disability Affairs reporter. Mm -hmm. Whose idea was it to start that position? It was mine. I was feeling like I was no longer being challenged in my, my role at Triple J. After sort of seven and a half years, I felt like I'd ticked all the boxes. 
and it was time to move on, but I didn't know what to. But I knew that a Royal Commission into Violence, Abuse, Neglect and Exploitation was going to kick off for, for people with disability. And for a long time I was so sick of reading and consuming media across the world that just portrayed our lives as trying to make other people who are non-disabled feel better about themselves or to make them feel resilient or that we were just these kind of projects of inspiration, inspiration. for people. Mm. Inspiration porn. You know, Stella mm. Young used to talk about it all the time. And I wanted to change that narrative and I wanted to make sure that at the centre of all the stories around the Disability Royal Commission that people with lived experience had a voice because I was reading stories that were about us that never featured us. And so I went into an ABC leadership meeting with lots of, you know, powerful people and it was a really nerve-wracking day. I remember feeling really sick as I was walking into that meeting and I thought, this is, I've just got to give this my best shot. And I put forward the proposal for a disability affairs reporter and I'm very lucky that they committed to it on the spot and a couple of weeks later they offered it to me. And what was your inbox like when it was announced that Naz Campanella was going to be the ABC's disability affairs reporter? It absolutely flooded. I knew that there were lots of stories that were not being told that needed to be, but I didn't realise just how big the job was going to be until it was announced and my inbox was flooded with people wanting to share everything from their child had been abused in a group home right through to a new program at, at a school that was being developed for autistic students, just anything and everything in between. And there were so many stories that I almost didn't know where to start. Yeah, if there hadn't been a Royal Commission going on at the time, do you think you might have taken on some awful feeling that it was up to you now to solve that problem rather than a gigantic judicial inquiry? Well, in a sense, I, I did feel a huge sense of responsibility because there really, to my knowledge, hadn't been a person that, that focused solely on disability in this country. Lots of the social affairs reporters did a beautiful job of, of writing about disability, but there was never someone with lived experience, visible lived experience like me, who could have the responsibility of putting those voices to air that, let's face it, a lot of people wouldn't want to take the time to manage to put to air. You know, some of the, the people that I work with are people who need a pre-interview. They need to know some of the questions that you're going to ask because they have an intellectual disability and they want to know how to answer beforehand. They might have a communication system that they navigate through speech software or through blinking that I have to learn and my producers have to learn how to use and interact with so that we can interview them. All of that that kind of preparation is unlike what many journalists experience. It's unlike what the requirements are for other talent that other people may interview. And a lot of people would find it so time-consuming and difficult and wouldn't know who to turn to for support to make that happen, but we do. And I'm really proud of that because we've put people to air that have said to us that they'd either had a really bad experience with the media before and never wanted to do it again until they had a beautiful experience with us or they would they were just completely overlooked for interviews altogether. When you were reporting on the Disability Royal Commission, you were hearing stories of sexual assault in homes and by carers, stories of children being removed from their mothers after birth, stories of forced sterilisation, yeah. terrible things, terrible yeah. things. The nation was 
shocked and quite distressed. But were these stories somewhat well-known or better known among disabled people in general and their own conversations between each other? Yes, without a doubt. Everything that we have heard at the Royal Commission is nothing that our community, being disabled people, our families, supporters and friends and allies, don't already know about. And I think the one thing in talking to people who are reflecting on the Royal Commission as we come to a final report that's going to be handed down at the end of the year is that they hope that the rest of the community of non-disabled people now also know that this is happening because it's not a thing of the past. It is happening behind closed doors in group homes, in sheltered workshops where people are exploited, in all kinds of settings right now. And the one thing we want is for people to know about it, for it to stop and for it to never happen again. And I think if I reflect on my own reporting of the Royal Commission over the last four and a bit years, there's not a single hearing that I've covered, and I've covered more than 20 of them, where I haven't shed a tear. And I think that's a really good thing because I know and love people who this has happened to. And for me, it's been a big responsibility that no matter how hard these stories are to listen to, it's nothing on the bravery that the witnesses have shown in getting up, in giving evidence, and it's a huge responsibility and a privilege to put their stories to air because it is the only way that we are going to get change. Of course, as ABC presenters, we can't be activists and we shouldn't be activists, but we must bring stories to light. How do you see your role with all that, Naz? It's very simple to me. I'm a journalist. I'm not an advocate or activist. I tell stories in a balanced, impartial, accurate way, and I canvas all aspects of a story. So I will go to all the players in a story because I want people to make up their own mind about an issue or about a program or a funding decision because that's my job. That's why I got into this industry. And lots of people now say that they wish they would see me reporting on things that are not to do with disability. But I think what people forget is that I've been in this game for 11 years and I spent seven, eight of them not covering disability. And that's where I honed the skills. It's just been in the last few years of my career where I've taken on this particular role. And it's the best role because I get to put stories to air and across platforms that would never have seen the light of day, voices to air and across all platforms that might never have had the opportunity. And I feel in some small way that there is so much power in bringing about all these different stories, no matter how hard they are for people to talk about or for me to tell, because it shines a light on all the different things that are going on in our community, both good and and bad, because I want to acknowledge there's also so much brilliant work going on. So a couple of years ago, you and your husband decided you were going to have a kid. Yes. And we've already talked about how weird people are with a blind woman on public transport. Is the world ready for a blind, very pregnant woman on public transport, Naz? Well, I was pregnant during COVID and five months of it was in lockdown, so I actually okay. didn't go on right. public transport I'm just saying as if people are coming woman, up to you but... handing you research, written research on how to cure your blindness <laughs> and you're not pregnant, I wonder if it's... Yeah, well, <laughs> what I will say is that 
People have often been very shocked when I've been sitting in a cafe, sitting down and I'm just holding my baby. And then when I stand up and I pull out my cane and put my baby under one arm, my husband will say, you should have seen the looks that you just got because they were completely shocked that the mother who's sitting next to them with a baby is How blind. dare you? How very dare you, lady? <laughs> yes, I can't imagine. We've it. been having babies mm. for years. All you know, People with disability have been having babies for years and we will continue to do so. So get used to get it. Get used to it, right, so you're, you've got a little boy, he's 17 months old. Yes. What's communication with him like? Oh, it's the best. He is so loud and I always used to worry, how am I going to know where my baby <laughs> is? I was looking into buying squeaky shoes and and little bells to put on his onesies and all those kinds of things. I needn't worry about all of that because he runs around on our floorboards in our house. Those floorboards have come so handy because I can hear him tapping around. He he squeals and laughs and just, you know, jibber-jabbers on, which is lovely. He's also in the last month started grabbing my hand and pulling me, you know, running me in whatever direction he wants me to go. I think he is really <laughs> starting to learn that mum does things in a bit of a different way to dad. And if he points to something or holds something up in front of my face, he's realised that I'm not registering. So often I'll get socked in the face with a toy or I'll get pulled to something and he'll pop my hand on on whatever it is he wants me to, to, you know, to get for him. How are you going to cope when you're on the phone to someone who's telling you some harrowing story that you really need to pay, need to pay close attention to as a journo? And this is a problem all journos have. The kid's hanging on your arm going, Mom, 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 See, well, Mom, like this that. happened only last week. I was doing a live right. cross into to local radio Perth on the ABC and <laughs> my, my son was, was sitting there knocking at the door saying, Mama, Mama, Mama. <laughs> And I just had to say, again, I'm real. I'm just, I am real with people. And I say, I'm really sorry. My son's just at the door. Um, we'll continue, we'll continue this chat. But, you know, hopefully his father will come running in a second and remove him. It's, you know. <laughs> just I, like that Korean journalist. Yes, I was kids. just about yeah. to say, it is exactly like that where <laughs> where they're doing a live cross on TV and, the, and the, the daughter runs in. It is a little bit like that. And I think, you know, my general philosophy and in all of my career is when something goes wrong or something doesn't go according to plan, you just take the audience along the journey with you because, you know, they are listening to you, they get to know you, you're in their home and their car. Just take them with you. I think the audience likes all of that. And I'm not going to pretend that I'm something I'm not. I'm not going to pretend that everything's always fine and dandy at home and my child's perfectly quiet every time I turn the microphone on. He's usually not. So, you know, I, I enjoy bringing a bit of my, my own life into, into the stories and into to the audience when it, when it needs to happen. More power to you, Naz. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Naz Campanella is the ABC's National Disability Affairs Reporter. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.